0: Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lease Lyons. In this episode, we're talking about how the American obsession with body shape and size leads people to victimize themselves and others.
1: I am both shocked, saddened, ashamed. Um, uh, God, so many other words. Uh, when I, when I see like these things where celebrities say, here's what I eat in a day and, and really like, and it's very common where it's these thin white women who are basically talking about their eating disorder and, and glorifying it. Basically every minute of their life is dictated by what they will eat, what they won't eat, when they'll exercise and when they won't and and you know i get i I'm, I'm upset that that gets promoted as like again glorified but i'm also like incredibly sad and upset about what what our society says to women especially that this is how you get a body that is valued like this is what you have to do to be accepted in the society and if you don't do this you're less than. And men get it as well. It's a different layer. It's a different um, nuance to it. But it it really makes me upset at at this is what is, you know, what my daughter is going to look at and see as normal, unless there's someone else to give her a counter message. In
0: 1983, the same year I was born, Karen Carpenter, the lead singer of the Grammy-winning band, The Carpenters, died of heart failure related to her years-long struggle with anorexia. Carpenter was a talented young woman with a voice that others envied and a body that she quite literally died for. At the time of her death, she was 32, Never mind that she had sold 80 million records and won three Grammy Awards, the quest for thinness destroyed everything she had worked for. And Carpenter is not alone. Anorexia has the highest fatality rate of any mental health illness. It is estimated that 4% of anorexics will die from complications of the disease. And yet, many of us quest for thinness whatever the cost. Here is Katie Corradino, Master of Science in Clinical Nutrition, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, Certified Dietitian Nutritionist, Certified Personal Trainer and Yoga Teacher, whose private practice, Full Soul Nutrition, takes a size-inclusive, weight-neutral approach to nutrition counseling and health coaching
2: the generalized idea in our society is that eating less is better and weighing less is better always, like under any circumstances. So therefore, um, saying that someone's lost weight is a compliment. Saying that someone is disciplined with food is a compliment. Um, And that's just kind of a result of the way that our world has kind of uh, qualified health and it's really important to push back against these kinds of comments in everyday context. I think for people who have an understanding of just how harmful those comments can be and just how important it is to define health in a holistic way, like we need to we need to kind of call out that stuff when we see it or push back against it or at the very least just ignore it and not reinforce it because yeah, it's one of the things that is so hard about recovery is that no
0: one's cheering you on when you eat a donut. Katie made another point that I think it's essential to share, especially in our image obsessed culture. Health is definitely not a look. Health is not a look. Eating disorders are not a look either, and misconceptions about how they present keep a lot of people stuck in cycles of self-abuse. I think
3: I just want to bring awareness to the truth that eating disorders come in all shapes. We tend to think of eating disorders as looking one specific way, affecting one specific group, right? You know, the the thin, toward you know, moving toward emaciated, um, white, adolescent, middle to upper class girl, and not that that um, segment isn't a, a significant portion of the eating disorder population but it's just a it's just a segment you know eating disorders affect people of all ages all genders all races all economic statuses um you know all body shapes and they do not look one way and i know there's a lot of work in the eating disorder community right now to build that awareness you know um which is really important and so I just want to add to that, that, that voice um, to just make people aware that
0: people, eating disorders affect all sizes and all colors. That was Jennifer Kriatsoulis, PhD. Jennifer is a certified yoga therapist and yoga teacher who specializes in eating disorders and body image. She is also the creator and host of Real Body Talk and the author of Body Mindful Yoga. Diana Clark is a writer and teacher from New Zealand. She received her MFA in fiction from Purdue University and is the author of the novel Thin Girls, the story of twin sisters. The book explores body image and queerness, as well as diet culture and the power of sisterhood love and friendship. Diana herself is in recovery from anorexia.
4: People think about eating disorders and they immediately think of anorexia and the thinnest white woman they can imagine, probably because that's how the media portrays eating disorders. But realistically, there is such a spectrum, such a broad, broad spectrum of disordered eating habits that just never get any airtime. And so, you know, those People going through that are never represented. Their their experiences are never represented um, for them to to recognize themselves in.
5: Yeah, and sometimes like I don't even think a person necessarily knows that they're sick because our diet culture is so normalized. I think if people can kind of be like partially eating disorders, that's glorified. Um, and there's like this imaginary line that once you're this like I, not imaginary, but like maybe arbitrary, that it's like, well, once you cross over this line, you move from being enviable to being like, you know, a cautionary tale. Yeah,
4: yeah, there's this idea, you know, there's this idea that you become an anorexic or you have, there's a point where you have an eating disorder. And that really just doesn't exist because you're right, it's, it's a sliding scale. And the whole world is on a diet. You know, and that a diet is disordered eating. I really think that the spectrum of eating disorders is we are mobile on it and we can move toward health and we can move toward illness, but I think everyone falls on it somewhere. And the point at which you become diagnosable with whichever disorder you have is pretty arbitrary, really. It's sort of just the point where. You you label what you've been doing to yourself. But realistically, you've been on that spectrum your your whole life, moving up and down it.
0: I know from personal experience what it is to spend one's life moving up and down the spectrum of disordered eating and eating disorders. At age 14, I developed anorexia and bulimia. And over the course of a little more than a decade, I was long-term inpatient hospitalized 18 times for treatment. In the 11 years since my last hospitalization, I've experienced long periods of remission and briefer periods of relapse. Many of the guests I spoke to in this episode are also in recovery from eating disorders, and many of them don't fit within the aforementioned narrative of the thinnest white woman imaginable. Here is Danny Adriana, fat activist, online content creator, peer support advocate and co-creator of the body reconnect collective
6: I think um for me growing up with my personal experience like I always thought um, that people who had eating disorders were like typically like really thin white teenagers who were like rich girls in movies and I don't know I just all like dancers like it was and i I was a dancer but like like ballerinas or like this idea of kind of like Um, a perfectionist like very attractive teen girl and it was like mainly focused on like not wanting to be fat or like losing weight whereas I feel like the actual reality of eating disorders come in like every shape and size like every socioeconomic background um, lots of different cultural and racial identities Um, and also I think there's also a stigma attached with people in larger bodies people assume that those people might be binge eating or overeating, not that I really like to use that term, but um, there's kind of this stigma attached to larger bodied individuals versus people who are quite thin. Um, Whereas I feel like in the experience I've had with my own lived experience, but also my community, um, you cannot really tell where someone is in their eating disorder journey, like what they look like. And also, weight tells you very little about what kind of behaviors or signs they're exhibiting, um, with food. Um, so it's much more complex and rich. And I think there's a lot of like layers, especially in eating disorders in terms of mental health, um, kind of recovery and help that's distorted because nobody would kind of say depression looks like one particular type of person or anxiety looks like one particular type of person Um, but there's a lot of assumptions made on like exterior um, exhibitors of eating disorders that actually are kind of unrelevant to an actual eating disorder because it is a mental illness.
0: Eating disorders are a mental illness. They do not manifest in one particular type of body or social demographic, race, gender, or other identity marker, and they do not limit themselves to a certain behavior with food. Anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and many other forms of disordered eating reveal themselves in a complex matrix of actions and emotions and are caused by an even more complex, often interconnected matrix of physical, psychological, and social factors. Each person's eating disorder story is unique, but there are some overlapping struggles that might help anyone listening to learn a little bit more about what's at the core of these issues. Brian Pollock, licensed clinical social worker, is the founder and clinical director of Hilltop Behavioral Health. He is a double-certified eating disorder specialist whose approach utilizes evidence-based practices such as dialectical behavior therapy, family-based therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder protocols. Additionally, Brian serves on the board of the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders.
7: So it is about control. And particularly eating disorders is a hundred percent about control.
0: Bibi Lorenzetti, a level two authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher and holistic health coach, and Danny Adriana, whose voice you heard earlier, agree.
8: It felt like nothing was in my control, and so the way that I, the way that I kind of built a sense of steadiness for myself, or a sense of okay, I, I can control this, is to control my body weight. That was kind of my coping mechanism.
6: It's not just that people with eating disorders are struggling to eat or struggling to eat too much. or It comes from like, very basic needs around control and trauma and um, anxiety and perfectionism.
0: While a person struggles to nourish their body adequately and consistently, they can feel as if they are unloved and unlovable.
4: It's such an isolating illness to experience for the person going through it because of how stigmatized dieting and eating disorders and mental health issues in general still are in the world. Anorexia is an incredibly isolating experience. It's inherently isolating because it comes hand in hand with wanting to keep secrets, like your plummeting caloric intake, for example, from the people in your life. It means yeah. pushing people away in order to make yourself sicker without intervention. And the, the problem is it's almost impossible to cure anorexia in such seclusion. The illness feeds on loneliness and it thrives in isolation. There's this voice in your head and to hear only that voice and no others, no arguments of logic or hope or reason is to be convinced by that voice. And so very few people who haven't experienced eating disorders understand them because people generally experience them very alone
0: it would make sense for those stuck in the cycle of eating disorder to feel alone because we live in a society that doesn't understand or empathize.
7: These are biologically based disorders. And I think sometimes we forget that and we get into stigmatization and judgment and avoidance of others and things like that, misunderstanding poor communication about our concerns or You know, almost projections, all kinds of funny things happen. And if you are someone whose DNA has a propensity or even just a genetic extra formulation of an eating disorder or body dysmorphia, which, by the way, they have found the genes for, there's proof of it. It's in our DNA. It is more likely to get triggered when you push too much or when you're under stress or you're trying to achieve something, and our society is putting more and more pressure on that particular genetic situation, which we're seeing more and more men starting to trigger this and losing their sense of groundedness and calm. And it's not their fault at all.
0: It's not people's fault. These issues are rooted in biology, trauma, control, and other factors, but they are also socially
5: reinforced. Well, and when you first started down that path of the eating disorder and that path of trying to change and reshape your body, what was the feedback that you were getting from the people around you?
3: Oh my gosh, they were just in awe. They were just in awe. You know, everywhere I went, I got compliments. On how great I look and how thin I look and how much, you know, wow, how different I look. Um, and so that was kind of very much re- reinforcing that my behavior was, was on target, like, because now socially I was, um, I was a lighter weight, <laughs> right? Um, and it showed. And so I just kept going with it.
0: Nearly 38 years after Karen Carpenter's death, it's as if we've learned nothing. Images of celebrities are emblazoned on the front pages of tabloid magazines and all over the internet whenever their weight moves up or down. And every time you turn on the TV or log into your email, you'll see an ad for the newest diet or weight loss strategy, often followed by a food commercial. Here's Emily Zargan, Assistant Director of Donor Relations at Temple University and company member of Comedy Sports, a national and international professional improv comedy franchise.
9: It's a catch-22 because we absolutely have this culture of thinness, but we do not have a society that promotes the pillars that hold up that. So uh, when we think about like food deserts and food insecurity, um, we think about corporate America and the rise of like chains like McDonald's and, and Burger King Wendy's. I mean, why is it that a salad at McDonald's is like 10 times more expensive than a Big Mac. And it's, I think the Big Mac is at McDonald's. I don't actually eat. Okay. Prices, so I don't know. Um, but like, I do know that the, the price the, the disparities are insane. Like, why is a salad more expensive than a burger? And when you set people up to fail and then they fail and then you punish them, it's just it's incredibly unfair.
0: It's not just celebrities who are idealized for thinness or shamed if they gain weight. of Americans report feeling at least some degree of body dissatisfaction and an estimated 45 million of us go on a diet every year. Society is obsessed with bodies, our own and each other's.
6: A lot of us have lost kind of that connection between embodiment and like objectification and we sit in our objectification seat a lot. Um, which makes sense because that's how, you know, society has raised us to see our bodies.
3: We live in a world that is so hyper-focused on bodies, you know, which bodies fit, which bodies don't, which bodies are fit, which bodies aren't right. Which bodies belong, which bodies don't. There's all this like, you know, these binaries around bodies. And, um, I think if we all could just, shift the focus from the external body to the stuff of the internal, um, in the way that we, in our conversations with each other, in, in our value systems, I think that would make the world
0: such a comfortable place for all bodies. And the world is not comfortable for all bodies, probably not for most bodies. There is a lot of toxic culture in fitness, a lot of pressure to look a certain way, eat a certain way, move a certain amount of minutes per day. Even when we succeed, many of us fail.
10: I, like so many young women, were, was struggling under beauty standards and perspectives of what my body should look like, that I was in a trap of. Calorie counting and like starving myself, essentially eating twelve hundred calories a day, trying to recover from a breakup. That I don't know, you know, you want to lose weight to be attractive after you break up with someone or something. All of these things that were told to me that I should do in order to feel better from heartbreak, and I realized I was spiraling out of control. That I was really. Struggling, I would be on the treadmill crying, and like I would be counting the amount of ranch I had on my salad after, and I just knew these things weren't sustainable. And even though I was seeing results, I, I knew my body was hurting.
0: That was Adesha Jones, whose voice you heard in a previous episode. Adesha is a vegan activist, passionate about food justice and bodily autonomy, whose ancestors are from Guatemala
5: and Africa
10: we in a capitalist society are so obsessed with ownership and in that route, we end up stripping ownership of a lot of people and their bodies and using it and commodifying it. And it could be for a profit or it could be just to create a new wave of a fad diet that will eventually trickle down and affect many people. But however it goes about, it will, it will happen eventually. And there's definitely a big, That will happen, I think, when people just have ownership of their bodies again and can operate amongst, amongst one another in a way that's liberated, that people are not constantly just commodifying their own bodies in order to survive under capitalism.
4: I put a lot of blame on the dieting industry, which is only growing more and more visible with social media advertising Things like intermittent fasting, you know, which is so unhealthy for so many people, um, and and laxative teas and diet pills and those those things that like crush your organs that the Kardashians really love those things those really harmful products are everywhere, and and dieting is almost functioning as a rite of passage. It's stigmatized for for women. Primarily, it's we are surveilled in what we consume, um, and we perform it for social media. We post our meals for the world to see. Um, eating is the most animal of practices, and it's become a performance eating industry. It's important to remember that it's an industry. I think it's easy to think, you know, it's a product that that claims that it will help me achieve what I want. So it's, it's hard to see that they're actually they're profiting. The companies that are selling those products are profiting from you and from your desire to be thin. And, and that's all it is for them. And you as human, you don't matter to them and your
0: health doesn't matter
4: to them. Only your money and the money you're spending on their dieting products matters to them.
0: The current United States population, as reported by the U.S. and World Population Clock, is approximately 330 million. And according to the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders, ANID, at least 30 million people of all ages and genders suffer from an eating disorder in the United States. That means that 9% of those living in this country engage in one or more of the following behaviors, binging, purging, starving, exercising to the point of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion, overdosing on laxatives, and doing things with food and movement that impede their ability to show up for life. This 9% doesn't include people who are caught in the trap of diet culture and disordered eating, yet whose behaviors don't rise to the level of severity to meet the medical criteria of an eating disorder. And it doesn't include the majority of the 70% of Americans who have been labeled by modern medicine, culture, and the media as quote-unquote overweight or obese. I say, quote unquote, because those words are not language I choose to use to describe larger bodied individuals. And I don't believe others should use those words either. They're judgmental and can be damaging. So much of the way we speak about food, bodies, and weight is damaging. Here's what Emily had to say about how people have treated her and other plus sized individuals.
9: There's a lot of... Uh responsibility like put on the individual um for like being a plus size person um because it seems like a very personal issue so it's like why are you complaining just stop eating so much versus you know my sexual identity as a person of the lgbt community like that is less controversial like that is not something that like it's something that happened to me like i didn't choose to be gay um, shocking i didn't um So I think there's a lot more empathy um, and then there's a lot more um, area for discourse versus like being a plus-size person is viewed as a very much something that I did wrong. And so like, why are you complaining to me?
0: Unlike the other interviewees whose voices are included in this episode, Emily doesn't work as an advocate for body liberation or as an eating disorder specialist. But she told me she has been fat shamed since the second grade. I reached out to Emily because I saw a post she shared on Facebook recounting how a woman from her former yoga studio had made toxic, disparaging, unprovoked, and uncalled for comments about Emily and her body. In a discussion thread, Emily had commented about the importance of wearing masks to protect ourselves and others. And the woman had responded by telling her that taking health advice from her would be like taking advice from a cigarette smoker about lung health and telling her to go stuff her face with muffins. Not only was this cruel and uncalled for, according to Emily, it wasn't new or original.
9: One of the... um symptoms uh, you're talking about like from academic versus like personal point of view. Well, I mean, I have an academic background, but I also do have a personal point of view when it comes to like body uh, perceptions and people absolutely do perceive fat people as being less intelligent. And so I have that knowledge. And so I automatically go into situations like knowing that on some level, Many people that I interact with think that I'm an idiot because I am a plus size person. So there's also like those stigmas come to play where it's not just like, oh, she's bad at taking care of her body, but like we can't trust her with anything.
0: In America and elsewhere, fat phobia is rampant. 61% of Americans see nothing wrong with making negative remarks about a person's weight, even going so far as to publicly shame others, based on the shape and size of their body. It is a type of prejudice that is socially endorsed and reinforced in a myriad of subtle and overt ways. According to Psychology Today, research reveals that over 50% of doctors described their fat patients, and I quote, as ugly, awkward, and non-compliant. One quarter of nurses reported feeling repulsed by their fat patients, and fat defendants are more likely to receive guilty verdicts than their slender counterparts. Even young children are reluctant to make friends with their larger bodied peers, which can only stem from the messages they're learning at home, on the playground, or from the nearly 30% of teachers who believe that getting fat is, and here's another quote, the worst thing that can happen to someone.
9: The assumption is that like, oh, you're a size person, like you must feel bad about yourself, you must feel horrible, like you must feel like the ugliest person in the room. Uh, you know, don't worry. You're not like, okay. Like, thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, and the flip side of that is like, Oh, you're thin, you're in a certain body. Therefore you must feel great. Your life must be perfect. You must be happy. And like,
9: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's not fair. It's not fair at all. Um, though, I will say, um, I, one of like the things that I've struggled with is like, I have, I can't tell you how many times a very thin woman, has looked me in the face and been like, oh my God, I just ate a bunch of fill in the blank. I look and feel so fat right now. And I'm just, I, I get it. like I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, how did you just look at me and say that to me? It just boggles my mind.
0: <laughs> it doesn't boggle my mind. I know from experience that inaccurate self-perception is one result of self-imposed starvation. Here is Bibi describing the body dysmorphia she experienced when she was actively anorexic.
8: I felt like I I didn't fit in or I felt like I didn't belong and therefore it would be hard for me to get any attention because I was so different. Um and so i I think my body it was always something that like I would have to shape to fit into the context that I was in and I stopped seeing myself or who i was i i started i started to just compare myself to what I had in front, and when I would look in the mirror i of course because I was trying to compare myself all the time i i couldn't i couldn't um it's almost like I couldn't recognize the idea or the image of me that i had in my mind or that i should be so the image didn't match i would look at myself in the mirror and what i would see didn't match the idea of me that i had and that that idea of me that ideal me in my mind that would be would fit in and would be accepted and these were all mental constructions that i created um that that ideal me kept shifting to something smaller and smaller and smaller so No matter what I did, I would look in the mirror and there would still be something that I needed to do in order to match that image.
0: Body dysmorphic disorder is in and of itself a mental disorder, characterized by the obsessive idea that some aspect of one's body is severely flawed and therefore requires exceptional measures to hide or fix it. These flaws may be imagined or actual. If they are actual, their importance is severely exaggerated, so the person perceives a minor imperfection in a magnified way and overfocuses on it. In either case, thoughts about the body become pervasive and intrusive and cause severe distress. But even those who don't have diagnosed or diagnosable body dysmorphic disorder can experience some degree of body dysmorphia, perceiving flaws that aren't there, or becoming preoccupied with altering something about their body, especially in the case of eating disorders, its size and shape. Here is Brian Pollack again.
7: Your podcast is about demystifying diversity in in males. And body image, I think, is a major diverse situation that most people don't even understand because we don't even look at men. And they're struggling the same way.
5: The cultural messaging around bodies seems to be different based on gender. But that doesn't mean that it's not equally pervasive and that it's not Mm -hmm. impacting people, right? And so I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit about the differences that you see in terms of maybe some of the messages.
7: What do you see before I say anything?
5: Yeah. So, what I see is that with, it that tends to be that with women, and I don't want to make like any like huge generalizations, but for the most part, what I see with women is that there tends to be like a huge emphasis on thinness. Now, sometimes there is, like, you know, you want to like, celebrity butt or boobs or whatever, but, like, the, the cultural messaging for women seems to be very much centered around thinness and, you know, are you thin enough, and if you are thin enough, then somehow that will make you, even though you're starving, like, you will be happier and more vibrant and more attractive or whatever. Like, I think that tends to be the dominant narrative. I think with men, my experience, and I'm not a man, so I'm not, you know, hypersensitized to it in the same way. But I think there's both. I think that there's an emphasis on like losing weight for, me- you know, men, and like, and you know, where do you carry your weight, and can you lose weight? But but it seems like there's also kind of this emphasis on like bulking up, but in a certain way that's very like muscle centric that I think leads to a lot of like mm-hmm. steroid usage and and orthorexia and those kinds of things, which can affect men and women equally. But I don't. To me, it seems like the the definitions of what bo- the body ideal is are different for men and women.
7: Similar coping, different behavior. Also yearning for possibly a different result, you know, depending on what's happening. So what do I mean by all that? And I think what you're saying is absolutely right and fair and a good uh, beginning as well as some depth to what's going on, no doubt. When it comes to men, there is that drive for muscularity. It is important. Now, not all guys. There are guys we work with uh, at uh, my practice, Hilltop Behavioral Health, where we help them try to make sense of their their drive believe it or not for thinness that actually happens for certain men where they want that pencil stick figure kind of look and there's there's a reason why they're doing that and there's a lot underneath to what's happening maybe psychodynamically or control wise it might be anxiety stuff etc
0: the drive to alter one's body spans genders Races, religions, and orientations. It may be personal, but it is also an adaptation to social pressures. We are wired to want to belong, and we try to find ways to do that, even if those ways are maladaptive and self-destructive. Diana summed up the situation perfectly.
4: I think something a lot of people get wrong about eating disorders is this misconception that it's to do with desiring thinness. But I don't think eating disorders are really about desiring thinness. I think they're about desiring desirability. And if the media idealized and romanticized fatness, for example, in the way that it does thinness, then we too would desire fatness. It's all about just wanting whatever the world wants us to want, really.
0: Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. There are some things we don't want to think about, like our own mortality. But it's important now more than ever, especially if we have people who we love and who rely on us. We need to make sure that those people are taken care of. If you've listened to previous Demystifying Diversity podcast episodes, you've heard me rave about Lavin and Associates. In addition to their free financial needs analysis, owners John and Patty Lavin offer low-cost term life insurance. With their guidance and support, I made a solid, easy, and actionable financial plan, which included my life insurance needs. Please contact them, especially now. It's the most loving thing you can do for yourself and for those you care about. To receive a free quote on low-cost term life insurance or a free financial needs analysis or both, call John at 610-453-2331 or email johnlavin at me.com. That's J-O-N-L-A-V-I-N at me.com. And as long as we're on the subject of doing things for yourself and your loved ones, I really want to tell you about next-level trainings. Whatever your struggles, finances, career, relationships, next-level trainings will vastly and quickly improve the quality of your life. The company uses experiential emotional intelligence exercises to help you see yourself as you are shift your perspective and start forming sustainable habits that will transform your life and by extension, your community and the world. In a supportive environment, you'll come to see yourself and others through a more open, powerful, and freeing lens. I did the trainings, and I sent my mom, my sister, a couple of my aunts, and so many friends. I basically want everyone to go because I can say from my own firsthand experience and from what I've witnessed in my loved ones that the trainings increase people's capacity for love, connection, and vulnerability. The trainings empower us to go for what we want in life and give us the tools to achieve our dreams. If we don't let go of what's holding us back and create the lives we want now, When will we do it? I can't recommend next-level trainings enough. And the company is offering demystifying diversity podcast listeners $50 off on Shift, their introductory virtual training. To add even more value to their offer, if you register for and attend the Shift Online training now, you'll receive a free voucher to their in-person discovery training, valued at $495. The voucher can be used when pandemic gathering restrictions lift. So go to nextleveltrainings.com diversity, that's nextleveltrainings with an S, dot com slash diversity and enter the promo code diversity. You'll be glad you did. Attempts at intentional body manipulation are damaging physically and psychologically, and that's not just my opinion. It's an indisputable fact proven by science and research. For example, in 1944 during World War II. Ansel Keys, PhD, and Joseph Brozick, PhD, embarked on a medical research study, the aim of which was to determine the impact of sustained dietary restriction. The Minnesota Starvation Experiment, often referred to as the Starvation Study, was a nine-month experiment conducted on healthy volunteers. As an alternative to serving in World War II, 36 conscientious war objectors spent three months eating a daily diet of 3,200 calories, followed by six months of 1,570 calories a day, semi-starvation, divided into two meals, then a rehabilitation period of three months eating 2,000 to 3,200 calories a day, and finally eight weeks of unrestricted intake. Not only did the men lose massive amounts of weight, they also lost their strength, stamina, and sex drive. They became depressed, irritable, apathetic, and obsessed with food. One of the study participants, 24-year-old Franklin Watkins, began having vivid dreams of cannibalism and was ultimately discharged from the study and sent to the hospital psychiatric ward after becoming homicidal and suicidal. Even after the study ended, many of the men reported uncontrollable episodes of binging, some even to the point of vomiting. They ate and ate and ate and never felt satisfied. Some of the participants struggled to eat, misperceiving their emaciated bodies when they looked into the mirror. These were healthy people with no pre-existing mental health concerns who intentionally restricted their food intake for a period of six months and as a result of this restriction they developed maladaptive eating behaviors for up to two years before their behaviors finally normalized. So let's imagine what happens to people who do have a pre-existing predisposition to anxiety or depression or self-harm, who go on a sustained period of dietary restriction. Judgments around food and body lead people to succumb to the lie of diet culture, that thinness equals happiness, and many pursue that thinness to the point of insanity and even to death. When culture tells people that the worst thing in the world is to be fat, it's little wonder we have a rising epidemic of bulimia, binge eating disorder, and anorexia. And for those that don't resort to those strategies, culture can be cruel. But there is a way out. First, however, we need to stop believing the lies of diet culture. Here is Erin Flores whose voice you heard at the beginning of the episode. Aaron is a registered dietitian nutritionist specializing in intuitive eating, health at every size, and a certified body trust provider.
1: I think recovering from an eating disorder or or rejecting diet culture and, and recovering into a larger body is an act of rebellion, right? It is... Um, you're sort of really with your body, you are making a statement that like, this is my healing. Like this body that is, you know, as, as, as fucked up as the BMI is and and should be thrown out is saying like this body, although according to this classification is, is outside the norm, this body is actually nourished. This body is actually healed. This body is healthier than the one that was smaller and being starved. And that is an act of rebellion.
6: I think truly one of the reasons that it was easier for me to get into this work initially was because I've always been a larger bodied person. So while um, oppression exists on many different levels and I have a lot of privilege, there is some oppression that I felt because of my size in different circumstances, whether that be medical, whether that be like peer, whether that be like bullying, whether it be like familial. So I think that for me, having a layer of oppression and feeling like I didn't fit into the eating disorder world because I didn't feel like I fit that mold or like I exhibited what it meant to have an eating disorder. Um, it was easier for me to unpack diet culture because it got to the point where even if you play the game, like it's, it's, it's too painful. Like you get to the point where you can't do it anymore.
0: In the game of dieting, even when we win, there's no real payoff. We attribute happiness to a specific number on the scale, you
4: know, or a specific pair of pants that we can finally fit into. But realistically, if you have an eating disorder, once you achieve that arbitrary marker of success, you just set another one and another one and another one, and you just descend further and further. And there is there is no stopping point until
5: you stop it yourself. Yeah, yeah, right, or you die, which eating anorexia, I think it's 4% of women with anorexia will die of the disease, Um, which might not sound like a huge, huge number, but it's the most deadly mental health illness that there is. Um, Right,
4: yeah, exactly, because it's a mental health illness that has direct
0: effects on your physical health. Let's talk about health. One of the modern misconceptions is that thin bodies are healthy bodies, but that isn't actually borne out by research. According to Healthline, in a study that followed 505 men aged 55 to 74 for 15 years, yo-yo dieting, also known as weight cycling, was associated with an 80% higher risk of dying during the study period. Meanwhile, men categorized as quote-unquote obese who maintained a consistent weight had a risk of dying that was similar to normal weight men.
9: There is an assumption, too, that like, because you are fat, you are unhealthy. Um, I am not an unhealthy person. I have predispositions to become unhealthy, um, which is why I, it's important to me to shed some of these extra pounds so that I can uh, live a long and happy life. Um, but currently, in my current state, there is nothing unhealthy about me, like my cholesterol is fine, my blood sugar is fine, my blood pressure is fine. Like, I, I'm not an unhealthy person. you um, I, I don't get sick. Um, when I do, I recover fairly quickly. Um, and, and so people look at you, though, and they're like, whoa, like, she's like, unhealthy. And it's like, I, I, I mean, No, like i i mean my liver probably is better than yours i don't like you know what i mean like it's just like this you don't know you don't know what is going on in somebody somebody's internal body just by looking at them
0: you really don't and a lot of doctors unknowingly and unintentionally harm their patients by focusing on weight we need to be
3: educating the medical profession around like how damaging their language can be um toward their, their patients uh, around weight and the blame that, that, that patients end up feeling like they've been given for their health um, issues. Um, it's, a real, it's a real issue, and for, for people that I know and clients that I know that have had to kind of endure that, it is extremely triggering and can really inflame an eating disorder um, in serious ways.
1: Respectful health care right? When I'm able to go to my doctor and not get a 30 minute lecture on weight loss, because I've come in for, um, a splinter, which literally happens to people in larger bodies, right? they come in with some sort of other issue and they get a lecture on losing weight. Um, when, when we are able to realize that health comes in many different sizes, it's not just a thin body, right? That, that, we can have healthy outcomes in a bunch of different body sizes that I don't have to work towards a thin ideal. And when we do a, a lot of these things and embrace movement for the joy that it brings us, not as a punishment, that our body responds, that our body like lines up in a way that feels like good to us, right? Your weight might go down. It might not. It might go up. Who knows, but e- but no matter what the case, you're doing more positive self-care for your body than the weight cycling and the diet that you were engaged in before.
9: For any plus-size person that might be listening, um, hold your doctor accountable because one of the most disturbing trends that I have seen in the plus-size community um, and personally experienced is that doctors just dismiss you because you're fat. Like every health problem you have, well, if you would just lose weight, well, if you would just lose weight, well, if you just lose weight, um, I have family members that, um, would go in for like a cold or a CIS infection and they'd be like, well, you wouldn't have gotten sick if you were less fat, um, which is ridiculous. And that's what I mean. Like you have to believe us when we say these things because it's a hundred percent something that happened. Um, uh, personally um, I started having pain in my hips and in my knee and this was new for me I had never had any joint pain before This was just maybe five years ago so um, you know early 20s that doesn't seem normal <laughs> um, and I went to the doctor I wasn't able to see my primary care physician I did see um, one of the RNs um, and she basically like poked at me and prodded me and um was like we can't do anything for you and um, and then when i told her i was just in excruciating pain like was there you know an anti-inflammatory i could take like something to like relieve the pressure so that maybe it would give it a break um and i'd be able to like reset she basically treated me like i was asking like i was just like off the street like asking for painkillers um which is not me um she's very skeptical and refused to like entertain the idea of giving me any sort of pain relief um and then she marked me down as obese in my um my fault and then sent me on my merry way and was like we can't do anything for you so that is a very specific example um but moreover i have told been told my entire life by every healthcare professional i've ever seen that um i should lose weight but none of them have helped me do that we could be the
8: you feeling all alone we can be the reason to find the strength to carry on in a world that's so divided we shall overcome we can be the healing we can be the flower in the gun we can be the healing we can be
0: the flower in the gun, the the in the gun. so what can we do individually and as a social collective, to encourage people, including ourselves, to live adequately nourished, full and free lives.
2: I take an anti-diet approach to my work, so um, it's really important to me that I do not give my patients any specific amount of like numbers, like any numbers or whether that's for calories or grams you know, of carbohydrates or um, anything that's going to feel, restrictive or feel like um a limitation or a maximum uh that is not something that i incorporate into my work and i also really reject the idea that weight is an indicator of health and that we should be focusing on weight loss as a goal so um regardless of the situation um even though some of my patients don't have eating disorders or disordered eating um i never focus on weight loss as a goal i focus on what are other health promoting behaviors that we can work on integrating into your life mindfully weight loss may or may not happen um and if it does it's just going to be a side effect um, your body just for some reason needed to lose weight but not everyone's body does need to lose weight and there are a million other factors that we could set as goals Um, and just let the body weight do what it's going to do based off of your individual metabolism.
0: And every person's body has its own unique set point, a place at which it feels the most vibrant and alive. No one can tell us where on any spectrum our body ought to fit. And if we're evaluating our bodies based on what they look like, we've completely missed the mark. That said, it is important to see bodies that look like ours, that are living full and vibrant lives. And body diversity is not the same thing as body positivity.
2: Body diversity is so, so, so important. And I think that especially in like we're talking about like celebrity culture, if um, a celebrity in a larger body is talking about food and nutrition, they're so often talking about weight loss um and it would be so important to see people in different sized bodies talking about intuitive eating rather than just the people who are sort of co-opting it um and people who are also like kind of co-opting the body positivity movement which was supposed to be for people um in marginalized bodies to um celebrate their bodies and express themselves and be um, out there and open. It's been kind of co-opted by people who are in smaller bodies and um, still promoting like this very sort of rigid diet, idea about intuitive eating.
6: I'm definitely much more invested in like fat liberation spaces and like fat positivity rather than body positivity. For me, it's much less of that surface idea of having to like what you look like or love what you look like or celebrate or feel beautiful. And it's much more about kind of untangling the oppressive systems that make us cruel and punishable to our bodies and also allowing us to kind of identify and exist in those bodies in a way that's safe because for a lot of us and you know I'm someone of a very privileged body but for a lot of people their bodies have not been a safe place to be their entire life because of the way our cultures kind of deems and has this hierarchy of beauty standards so for me like a lot of the (sighs) like, gold nuggets and, like, the great parts of body positivity are, like, really founded in a lot of communities of colour and particularly, like, also the disabled community, people with chronic health issues, kind of bodies that really fit currently what is outside of the mainstream acceptable body Um, and that when you kind of dive into body positivity, even for me as someone who is a white woman but is fat, there's so many allowances of difference and ability to see different bodies represented which even for someone like me who is a millennial I feel like a majority of my life even as a teenager media was still very very small in terms of representation and while we are making strides towards things you know body positivity does have a really strong like kind of political activist roots which is where I always feel most comfortable in terms of like my expression
1: personally i don't choose words like body positivity uh, and the main reason is um a couple reasons one it's been co-opted uh by a lot of uh big companies and and, this, and a lot of diet companies um and and two is when i put in that like hashtag right on my social media i don't see any diversity in that image i see body diversity as a lot of thin white women who are showing off their roles in their yoga pants, mid pose. Uh, And that's to me, not body, body positivity. Um, I want to see someone that looks like me. I want to see large bodies, small bodies. I want to see people of color. i want to see trans bodies, non-binary bodies. I want to see bodies that are, are, um, uh, disabled i want to see able bodies i want to see a, a diverse um representation and and so uh, and, and often sometimes body acceptance is not great language either right for for trans folks body acceptance might not be it, it is a term that could, could say like you want me to accept the body i'm in but i it, that that doesn't align with my gender of of how i see myself and and that that I can't accept that. I'm going to work on changing my body. Um, and there's a lot of very challenging acceptance issues for bodies that are dealing with chronic pain or, um, or things that, that do limit their ability. So, so it's, and, and then here's me just even going off on even more is neutrality is hard for me too sometimes because there is so much oppression around bodies. Like I can't be neutral about it. Like, I'm going to take a stand. So, so a lot of folks come to this uh, and like fall into the like this body liberation space, which I, I can sort of, I think I, I land with probably more often. Um, but I, I also, listen, as you can tell, I talk a lot of, about this with my clients, like why language is really important, why we want to think about the words that we're using to sit with our body.
0: Language is essential. It's really important to interrogate the messages we feed ourselves and others about bodies, weight, and food. How many times have you heard someone say something such as, I was so good, I ate a salad, or I'm being so bad, I ordered dessert? How many times have you been the one to say these things? It's okay. If you've succumbed to the cultural obsession with body perfection, you are far from alone. But you do have the option to, at the very least, begin to question whether or not the messaging you're putting out into the world is helpful or harmful. And if you are trying to reject diet culture, make sure you don't fall into the trap of moving from calling yourself or others ugly to objectifying bodies in a different way. If we just shift the
6: focus to, okay, I'm not ugly anymore, but now I'm beautiful, aren't we really still playing in the same hierarchy and the same kind of place of feelings and the same behavioural concepts, but just now we've, like, put some glitter on it and it's, like, shiny? If you've gone to body positivity just to feel beautiful, it's going to give you the same empty, hollow feeling that whatever you did before that did. For me, sitting in body neutrality or exploring that as a feeling and emotion and kind of a coping strategy, I think
0: is a lot more helpful for people long-term. Making the decision to reject objectification and to stop seeking to alter your body and just be who you are can be painful, but in the long run, it's liberating.
6: It can feel really jarring because there is a stage, and I don't know if you felt this, but I definitely did, is when I finally gave up on this idea that if I looked like what I thought I needed to look like and that was going to change everything in my life and everything would be perfect and I would be, like, happy forever and, you know, nothing would ever hurt me again, when I finally let go of kind of that completely idiotic (laughs) idea but that had been presented to me by everything my whole life, like in movies, songs, everything – there was like a period where I was really angry and really grieving about that because not only did I have to face like, oh, this is an illusion and it's all just bullshit. I also had to be like, oh, I spent so many years doing this, you know, like there are times when I'm like, if I was like this in high school now, like I would not have cared. I would have gone and done everything I wanted to do. I, I mean, that's also just part of being an adolescent, but like I wouldn't have cared what anyone else had said, I wouldn't have liked that idiot boy who treated me like that. You know, I would I would have settled for being treated for how I deserve to be rather than kind of hiding and shaming myself into this dark, dark place. So there is a stage and I see this a lot, particularly with women, maybe the generation and the generation above that is like, Part of the reason I feel like they're so resistant to wanting to change or open up to that is because then they have to admit that a majority of their life was really wasted on something that wasn't achievable, a lie that they got sold. And if you're someone who really prides themselves on you know, being proactive and being a hard worker and, you know, really chasing after their goals and stuff like that. It's hard to admit like it's a rigged game. Like that's a, that's a hard thing to be like, I spent all of those years doing that. So, but part of the cool part about if you can get through that grief is also realising like you have so much ahead of you, regardless of where you are in your age, that you don't have to do that anymore In my opinion, like any extra day you have not doing that is like more beneficial than staying held back in that place.
1: Release the dogma of diet culture and this notion that your body is broken and actually flip it on its head and say, you know, actually your body is not broken. It has a ton of wisdom. Let's tap into that wisdom. This is much harder work than me just giving you a six week plan and go and do the plan, and then follow up with me next year. This, that would be, that's, that's, a, a, well, first, to me, it's unethical. Uh, but two, it's completely devoid of any human interaction. Like, there's no nuance. And what, and, you know, me and other body trust providers, and there's many throughout the country, and the world are, we're, we're sort of saying, let's engage in a deeper level. Like, let's, Let's actually make food really personal and think about doing things for yourself, not to yourself. There's two sides of the coin. It could be beautiful
7: and amazing and wonderful to be an outsider because then you don't have to live in the norms that people think are powerful. Although that is enticing to see that that could create something. give you leverage, create success, it's seen as a certain thing. But at the same time, being on the outside of that you get to build the life you want you get to be the person you want without having to live within these almost puppeteered strings of society that we don't feel good about
1: internally there is something aside from diet culture and 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 trying to control your body there is a different way of living
10: hi this is anna marie Dara, Lisa, and I thank you for tuning in to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. We'd love to hear your voices on topics of diversity. So join in on the conversation by calling 844-888-8148 and leave us a message or drop us a note through the website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com, and we'll do our best to answer your question during our Q&A episodes
0: this process of moving away from diet culture towards a more neutral relationship with food and your body is hardly ever linear here are how some of those i interviewed described their process
3: i've changed up my language a bit to, to say healing path um i use recovery because i use that word recovery because it is you know part of our our the language that we use um but I find that sometimes it can get a little confusing for people, like recovered recovery, like they feel like destinations, right? Like that someplace one arrives. And a lot of time that destination is like it's on the top of a mountain. <laughs> right? And so I kind of like healing paths because to me, no matter where you are in your healing process, if you're on a path, you know, you, you have freedom to You have you have freedom to explore, you have freedom to to move, you have freedom to go in different directions and try different things versus just like straight up the mountain.
1: Another, I think, place our community can grow is this idea of being recovered. Is it like once you get to a certain point and you're recover in your recovery, right? You're like you're recovered and it's never gonna come back. And I just don't think that's true. I think we can struggle in subtle ways or in real ways that doesn't make us less than it doesn't mean we did anything wrong. It's it's just, this is how life is. And sometimes relapses are going to happen because uh, diet culture is, is, is a motherfucker and it's, it's evil and it's horrible and it doesn't stop.
8: We can begin now and we can begin again. And no matter how many times we fall backwards or forward, like we can, we can begin again to come back to centers.
6: I am someone who personally believes that like you're always in recovery. I kind of see it more from like, not an AA because I don't really subscribe to that, but like more of that idea that like I will always be in recovery and like mental health check-ins and like knowing that I have a predisposition to want to control around things that I can control, which food is like one of the biggest things. um, It's something that I'll probably do for the rest of my life. However, I do consider myself in a highly recovered place.
2: Currently, at this moment, I am recovered. And I think that I wasn't recovered necessarily in, like, my first couple of years of college. Um, and what I mean by that is I kind of changed my definition of recovery as I got a little bit older. But it's just interesting because, you know, for a bit, I my perception was that I was recovered when, in fact, I wasn't until, like, I really got the chance to learn more about what makes up, like, full recovery.
0: Of course, I asked Katie what full recovery meant to her.
2: I think what recovery, like, full recovery looks like is going to be really individualized, I guess, depending on the context of every individual's life. But I do think the one thing that everybody's full recovery shares is um, a neutral relationship with food. Um, Like not letting food hold so much power
0: and value. And how do we know if our relationship with food isn't healthy?
3: I think that if you're finding, you're thinking about food most of the time, or if you're really hard on yourself around eating, if being hungry and full are scary sensations, if you're attached to the scale or working out or eating only a certain way, counting calories, you know, anything, any types of behaviors that feel really obsessive. Um, I highly recommend checking out the National Eating Disorder Association's website because there's a ton of resources there and information about the different types of eating disorders, symptoms, characteristics, you know, read through them, and if you recognize yourself in any of those, then maybe that's, you know, that's a gift, meaning that you can gain some awareness and take the next step to, to get some help.
0: Something that was very helpful for both Jennifer and Bibi was yoga. BB spoke about what she learned from her yoga practice and when she finished speaking we both agreed that the experience she described directly parallels what it feels like to be engaged in the daily practice of recovering from an eating disorder
8: it teaches you about freedom and it teaches you about like self-respect and truthfulness and you know compassion and a healthy selfishness and food and like your energy and food and how, you know, it, it's just such a, it'll not, again, it goes back to the process. If you're in it for the process and if you put yourself fully into the practice and you do it correctly, not as a as a means to better your body, but as a means to really like a prayer, like a moving prayer with your body, it begins to just open up all, like loosen up all these places that in yoga we call grampis, like all these blockages inside, it, be, it begins to open them up and it allows you to really start experiencing yourself from within. And it gives you this incredible strength and freedom and, and yeah, it just changes the whole perception of who you are
0: once we start to practice greater individual liberation, we can extend that practice and perception outward and become invested in body liberation.
1: I think there is a lot of space for social justice movements to start to embrace more body diversity. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's not something that is discussed as much, uh, but but needs to be discussed because, you know, I've had a lot of interactions with folks from different marginalized identities and, you know, we'll say like, it's okay for me to be, um, you know, uh, uh, queer. I can be, I can be a person of color. Uh, I can be, you know, whatever other marginal, or you know, whatever other identities show up. But like when I add fat to that or lit or being a larger body, like then it's totally unacceptable. And, and I think we need to make space for, for that body diversity language and, um, and, and acceptance because it is the same form of oppression. It is, um, it, it's, it's rooted in white supremacy. It is, um, it is definitely having a negative health impact on people's lives instead of, you know, helping people, as people might think, shame helps people change their lives for the better. It doesn't. Uh, People end up living with more shame, and, and it's traumatic.
0: Karen Carpenter once said, and here's a quote, people never think of entertainers as being human. When you walk out on stage, the audience thinks nothing can go wrong with them. We get sick, and we have headaches, just like they do. When we are cut, we bleed. Celebrity doesn't make a person immune to pain. Money doesn't insulate us from mental illness. And at the same time, it is clear that if we can stop idolizing restriction and embrace body diversity, self-care, community, vulnerability, and connection, we can create an environment for actual health, not thinness necessarily, but mental, physical, and emotional well-being, health at every size. Thank you for listening to the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you'd like to join the conversation, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com or call 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Many thanks to interviewees Katie Corradino, Danny Adriana, Diana Clark, Adesha Jones, Brian Pollack, Aaron Flores, Emily Zargan, Bibi Lorenzetti, and Jennifer Krietsoulis, and to our episode sponsors, Next Level Training and Lavin and Associates. Each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lyons, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. The music you heard is The Flower by Michael Franti and Spearhead, featuring Victoria Canal. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, Pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week, and in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.